Section 16 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Sartor. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. Walt Whitman, Part 1. All seems beautiful to me. I can repeat over to men and women, You have done such good to me, I would do the same to you. I will recruit for myself and you as I go. I will scatter myself among men and women as I go. I will toss a new gladness and roughness among them. Song of the Open Road Max Nordeaux wrote a book wrote it with his tongue in his cheek, a dash of vitriol in the ink, and with a pen that scratched, and the first critic who seemed to place a just estimate on the work was Mr. Zangwill, he who has no Christian name. Mr. Zangwill made an attempt to swear out a writ de lunatico inquirendo against his Jewish brother, on the ground that the first symptom of insanity is often the delusion that others are insane. And this being so, Dr. Nordeaux was not a safe subject to be at large. But the assize of public opinion denied the petition, and the dear people bought the book at from three to five dollars a copy. Printed in several languages, its sales have mounted to a hundred thousand volumes, and the author's net profit is full forty thousand dollars. No wonder is it that, with pockets full to bursting, Dr. Nordeaux goes out behind the house and laughs uproariously whenever he thinks of how he has worked the world. If Dr. Talmage is the Barnum of theology, surely we may call Dr. Nordeaux the Barnum of science. His agility in manipulating facts is equal to Herman's now you see it and now you don't with pocket handkerchiefs. Yet Herman's exhibition is worth the admittance fee, and Nordeaux's book, seemingly written in collaboration with Jules Verne and Mark Twain, would be cheap for a dollar. But what I object to is Professor Herman's disciples posing as, sure enough, materializing mediums, and Professor Lombroso's followers calling themselves scientists, when each goes forth without script or purse, with no other purpose than to supply themselves with both. Yet it was Barnum himself who said that the public delights in being humbugged, and strange it is that we will not allow ourselves to be thimble-ridged without paying for the privilege. Nordeaux's success hinged on his audacious assumption that the public knew nothing of the law of antithesis. Yet Plato explained that the opposites of things look alike, and sometimes are alike, and that was quite a while ago. The multitude answered, Thou hast a devil. Many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. And Nordeaux shouts, in a voice more heady than that of Pilate, more throaty than that of Festus, Mad, Whitman was, mad beyond the cavil of a doubt. 
In 1862, Lincoln, looking out of a window, before lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, on one of the streets of Washington, saw a working man in shirt-sleeves go by. Turning to a friend, the president said, There goes a man! The exclamation sounds singularly like that of Napoleon on meeting Goethe. But the Corsican's remark was intended for the poet's ear, while Lincoln did not know who his man was, although he came to know him afterward. Lincoln in his early days was a working man and an athlete, and he never quite got the idea out of his head, and I am glad, that he was still a hewer of wood. He once told George William Curtis that he more than half expected yet to go back to the farm and earn his daily bread by the work that his hands found to do. He dreamed of it nights, and whenever he saw a splendid toiler, he felt like hailing the man as brother and striking hands with him. When Lincoln saw Whitman strolling majestically past, he took him for a stevedore, or possibly the foreman of a construction gang. Whitman was fifty-one years old then. His long, flowing beard was snow-white, and the shock that covered his jove-like head was iron-gray. His form was that of an Apollo, who had arrived at years of discretion. He weighed an even two hundred pounds, and was just six feet high. His plain, check, cotton shirt was open at the throat to the breast, and he had an independence, a self-sufficiency, and withal a cleanness, a sweetness, and a gentleness, that told that, although he had a giant's strength, he did not use it like a giant. Whitman used no tobacco, neither did he apply hot and rebellious liquors to his blood, and with unblushing forehead woo the means of debility and disease. Up to his fifty-third year he had never known a sick day, although at thirty his hair had begun to whiten. He had the look of age in his youth, and the look of youth in his age, that often marks the exceptional man. But at fifty-three his splendid health was crowded to the breaking strain. How? Through caring for wounded, sick and dying men, hour after hour, day after day, through the long, silent watches of the night, from 864 to the day of his death in 1892, he was, physically, a man in ruins. But he did not wither at the top. Through it all he held the healthy optimism of boyhood, carrying with him the perfume of the morning and the lavish heart of youth. Dr. Buck, who was superintendent of a hospital for the insane, for fifteen years, and the intimate friend of Whitman all the time, has said, His build, his stature, his exceptional health of mind and body, the size and form of his features, his cleanliness of mind and body, the grace of his movements and gestures, the grandeur, and especially the magnetism of his presence, the charm of his voice, his genial, kindly humour, the simplicity of his habits and tastes, his freedom from convention, the largeness and the beauty of his manner, his calmness and majesty, his charity and forbearance, his entire unresentfulness under whatever provocation, 
his liberality, his universal sympathy with humanity in all ages and lands, his broad tolerance, his Catholic friendliness, and his unexampled faculty of attracting affection, all prove his perfectly proportioned manliness. But Whitman differed from the disciple of Lombroso in two notable particulars. He had no quarrel with the world, and he did not wax rich. One thing thou lackest, O Walt Whitman, we might have said to the poet. You are not a financier. He died poor. But this is no proof of degeneracy, save on change. When the children of Count Tolstoy endeavoured to have him adjudged insane, the court denied the application and voiced the wisest decision that ever came out of Russia. A man who gives away his money is not necessarily more foolish than he who saves it. And with Horace L. Traubel, I assert that Whitman was the sanest man I ever saw. Some men make themselves homes, and others there be who rent rooms. Walt Whitman was essentially a citizen of the world. The world was his home, and mankind were his friends. There was a quality in the man peculiarly universal, a strong, virile poise that asked for nothing, but took what it needed. He loved men as brothers, yet his brothers, after the flesh, understood him not. He loved children. They turned to him instinctively, but he had no children of his own. He loved women, and yet this strongly sexed and manly man never loved a woman. And I might here say, as Philip Gilbert Hamerton said of Turner, he was lamentably unfortunate in this. Throughout his whole life he never came under the ennobling and refining influence of a good woman. It requires, too, to make a home. The first home was made when a woman, cradling in her loving arms a baby, crooned a lullaby. All the tender sentimentality we throw around a place is the result of the sacred thought that we live there with someone else. It is our home. The home is a tryst, the place where we retire and shut the world out. Lovers make a home, just as birds make a nest, and unless a man knows the spell of the divine passion, I hardly see how he can have a home at all. He only rents a room. Camden is separated from the city of Philadelphia by the Delaware River. Camden lies low and flat, a great, sandy, monotonous waste of straggling buildings. Here and there are straight rows of cheap houses, evidently erected by staid, broad-brimmed speculators from across the river, with eyes on the main chance. But they reckoned ill, for the town did not boom. Some of these houses have marble steps and white, barn-like shutters that might withstand a siege. When a funeral takes place in one of these houses, the shutters are tied with strips of mournful black alpaca for a year and a day. Engineers, dockmen, express drivers, and mechanics largely make up the citizens of Camden. Of course, Camden has its smug corner, where prosperous merchants most do congregate. 
where they play croquet in the front yards, and have window boxes, and a piano, and veranda chairs, and terracotta statuary, but for the most part the houses of Camden are rented, and rented cheap. Many of the domiciles are frame, and have the happy tumble-down look of the back streets in Charleston or Richmond, those streets where the white trash merges off into prosperous, coloured aristocracy. Old hats do duty in keeping out the fresh air, where providence has interfered and broken out a pane. Blinds hang by a single hinge. Bricks on the chimney-tops threaten the passers-by. Stringers and posts mark the place where proud picket fences once stood, the pickets having gone for kindling long ago. In the warm summer evenings, men in shirt-sleeves sit on the front steps and stolidly smoke, while children pile up sand in the streets and play in the gutters. Parallel with Mickle Street, a block away, are railway tracks. There, noisy switch engines that never keep Sabbath, puff back and forth, day and night, sending showers of soot and smoke when the wind is right, and it usually is, straight over number 328, where, according to John Addington Simmons and William Michael Rossetti, lived the mightiest seer of the century, the man whom they rank with Socrates, Epictetus, St. Paul, Michelangelo, and Dante. End of Walt Whitman, Part 1 Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland